Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stankoviak. This is episode 157, and on today's show, we're joined by a special guest host, Beverly Nelson. You've seen Beverly around the blog. She has done some awesome stuff in the learning section. A more recent article for her is Get Resources for Visual Learners. If you haven't seen that post, check the show notes for it. We're also joined by Sarah Allen. Sarah is most known for her work to diversify Ruby with Rails Bridge. She co-founded that in 2009 and also Bridge Foundry. But we dive deep into Sarah's history of programming, such wealth of knowledge. Loved having Sarah on the show. We have three awesome sponsors for the show. CodeShip, TopTal, and DigitalOcean. CodeShip is our first sponsor. Very hosted, continuous delivery service, focusing on speed, security, and customizability. It's all about helping you and your team focus on your code while automating your delivery workflows. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy your code when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and your Bitbucket projects, so no worries there. You can get started today with CodeShip's free plan. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan you choose for three months by using this code, the ChangeLaw Podcast. Use that code and get 20% off any plan you choose for three months. Head to CodeShip.com slash ChangeLaw to get started. Tell them we sent you, and now on to the show. Hey everybody, Adam here from the Change Log. I'm joined today by Sarah Allen and Beverly Nelson. Sarah, you've been lining up this call for a while, Beverly. You helped line it up. Uh, Just some quick introductions from my side. Beverly, you work on the uh, Change Log team, writing and now being on the podcast. And Sarah, you uh, and Beverly work together outside of this stuff, actually, in uh, with your with the with Bridge Founder, something you founded to to help. Uh, move tech learning move moving forward. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I guess, Sarah, let's start with you with some quick introductions. So for those who may not know who you are, how do you introduce yourself? Well, I've been in the software industry for over 20 years, most of the time as an individual contributor developer, um, also as a technical leader. And um, early in my career, I did a little bit of UI design. And now I... Um, lead a product team um, working for the United States federal government at a group called 18F. I have to say that I do not speak for the federal government. And um, with that disclaimer, I'm speaking in my personal capacity. Um, uh, I am a leader of Bridge Foundry, the leader of Bridge Foundry, which is an organization that started out as RailsBridge, which I co-founded with Sarah May um, and the Open Workshops Project. And, um, and then a few years ago, we refactored the organization and created Bridge Foundry, which is dedicated to all the different technologies. And um, in, in my other hat that I wear is I have a startup company that I work on on the side called Mightyverse. So many things. Wow. Lots of things. A serial innovator is what I read somewhere about you. Is that uh, seems to be true, right? Yeah, that's the name I came up with because um, people always called themselves serial entrepreneurs and I like making things and sometimes they're companies and sometimes they're open source projects or sometimes they're other things. 
And uh, so, Beverly, you helped line up this call. Uh, good friends with Sarah. Work with her with uh, with Bridge Foundry. We work together at Pure Charity, so that's that's obviously uh, nothing that's hidden. You've worked with uh, me on the Change Log. One of your posts recently was a very big post. Get resources for visual learners. You love teaching, so uh, I don't know if I did your intro for you, but <laughs> it yeah, could be sums, to a degree. That sums it up. I would say definitely. I'm a, a Ruby developer and. I just have a tremendous passion for learning and making information accessible, especially for those who may be in an area that's not uh, diverse enough to have technology easily accessible. And so it's a personal gain of my a personal mission just to really expose that to as many people as possible and give them the opportunities that I was given. So I feel like this call isn't exactly um, isn't exactly just about, you know, your efforts collectively, the two of you together around diversity, not so much just for women, but also for all walks of life, all races of life, uh, the under, the underrepresented, but also about the work you're doing in open source. And Sarah, I'm really interested about, uh, about your history, um, in software development. You've been around for a while. I'm not saying you're old. I'm 36, but, uh, I've got some history and you've got some history. So I'm really curious to like go back in your past a bit. Can we go back in your past to maybe, um, you know, some fun times, I guess. When did this all begin for you? Well, I started programming when I was 12. Oh, okay. Um, my mom brought home an Apple II. Um, she'd been laid off from teaching and decided that she was going to sell computers, which is a huge departure from, for her. And um, she really wanted to learn about them. And I was very lucky that I had school off the day after it arrived. And at that time... Um, Apple II's came with a manual that told you how to kind of open it and get started, and then it came up with a second book that taught you basic. So I just walked, went through the book and typed stuff into the command line and learned how to make the computer do things. And I think it's a very sad thing that nowadays it's very inaccessible to get started coding. I think it's a great thing that computers are more accessible for people who don't want to code. But now you have to install all this stuff onto your computer just to write code. And I right. think that's pretty unfortunate. Yeah, I guess so. So what's the, I guess the kind of mirroring that against the setup to develop Ruby, I guess, on a, on a Mac? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, anything. You know, if you, we, we have these graphical user experiences and um, you have to install special editions to get to the terminal on a Mac. Um, and often, it's just hard to get started. In the early days of Apple and Macintosh, there were things like HyperCard. You know, there was um, there was Basic. There were all these things that were built in that allowed um, people to kind of access the underbelly of the machine or do a little hacking in a friendly way. And that um, value system of really allowing people to modify and change and invent things with computers seems to be um, a less accessible than it was, you know, in um, the early days. So I guess you have a pretty awesome handle, right? Ultrasaurus. And <laughs> you've even gone as far on your site to explain uh, what an Ultrasaurus is. But for those who don't want to go to that URL and, and read your awesome copy about what an ultrasource is, which I totally enjoyed. Uh, what is an ultrasource? Can you tell us now? 
Um, it's a um, very large dinosaur. So I did, I'm not sure that I was, um, I didn't give it a lot of forethought when I came up with this handle because I, I'm not sure that I should have picked being a very large dinosaur when it comes to working in tech um, because there are biases against people who are older. But uh, I did, uh, I, when I first, um, I needed to have a domain name that was unique, and I had a, my son was four and a half years old at the time and going through this major dinosaur phase. And the Ultrasaurus I had recently learned about, so um, I picked that as a domain name. And then I was experimenting with a bunch of what are now called social networks. But at the day, we, you know, sort of called themselves, you know, sort of con consumer, con computer-assisted collaborative work, I think was what people called it or something like that. And so I would need, Sarah is a common name, and Sarah Allen actually is a common name. So I would put Ultrasaurus as the name for all these different things that I was experimenting with, um, realizing only later that that would then become my actual name on the internet. It's crazy though, right? Like it I guess I'm going to say back in the day, because I chose the same thing back in the day. I was adamstack.com. I never was my full name because my last name is nine letters. And as soon as you see nine letters, you're like, uh, I can't pronounce your name. So I was just Adam Stacks. And so, you know, you kind of choose your handle to a degree. Um, but nowadays it's a bit more explicit, right? When you join the web, basically, social, anything. Anytime you make a presence on the web, you're asked, what is your username? And so sometimes people have several. Uh, sometimes people have aliases because they're they're like catfish or whatever. Um, but some of us are pretty explicit about who we are, and we and we kind of state that out there. So you sort of did it accidentally to a degree. Yeah, and then and now of course it's um, it's very convenient because as long as I'm relatively early in this whatever it is, uh, usually Ultrasaurus is a unique name. So let's talk a bit about, uh, I, I guess, past the Apple II, past Basic. At what point did it become real for you? You know, like you were a kid, you were twelve, but at what point were you like, I, I want to do this for a living. I like this stuff. I could do something with it. At what point did that happen for you? It wasn't until after I graduated from college. I'd actually gotten a computer science degree and co-founded a company before I decided that this was actually what I wanted to do. Uh, how's that happen? Uh, well, I um, I went to Brown University, and I was kind of really interested in studying language, but I ended up wanting to get a visual arts degree, and I was really interested in studio art, but I didn't think that that was... Um, if I was paying all this money for college, I should do something practical. So I, did, I studied computer science as a backup because um, I figured I could always get a job programming. And um, and then I decided not to do art full time because I wanted not to compromise my art. Um, and I had this theory that if I was a programmer by day, that I would have time to do art, um, which I did probably for one year of my career. But as um, I think we all know, it can be a little all consuming to be a programmer. Yes. Uh, so I. Um, a bunch of my friends um, who graduated a half a year before me were starting this company. We called the Company of Science and Art, which was a very good fit for me. And I, um, I joined the, you know, the founding team of this company. And still, you know, we were building software, but I didn't think that this was what I was going to do with my life. 
And then um, it was only, I was answering a tech support call and because um, we all took turns, you know, playing tech support. Um, there were only eight of us at the company and this was probably like a year later. And um, there, somebody had bought our software and had a question about like what, what it could do. And I had helped write the manual. I was very proud of myself. And I said, oh, if you just turn to page 34 and you can see right there that it does whatever. And um, the guy said, wow, I didn't know computers could do that. And he said, I just bought this software as a lark. Um, I thought maybe it would be helpful, but I was not convinced that this was even possible. And I was really struck by that because it was something like, um, you know, our software, you could then you, it would did um, audio and vi like synchronized graphics and audio off um, CD-ROM. And this was like connecting um, something like um, Macromind Director to play our um, audio and video triggered from something mechanical. So nowadays, like that's mom and apple pie. Everybody realizes that, you know, the Internet of Things, you can connect things and sensors to computers. But um, even then, I knew that that was possible. It never occurred to me that there was anybody who was literate who would have a computer who would not realize that this was possible, right? That just maybe it was, you know, took a bunch of work to make it, to make the connections happen. And maybe it wasn't practical, like maybe it wasn't worth the expense of doing it, but it was certainly possible. And that there was somebody who thought that maybe it wasn't possible. And then I thought, of all the things that I can think of that I know are possible, like I just, I just know it because of all the things that I know, and then I can imagine these things that other people can't imagine because they don't think they're possible. Blows your mind. Yeah. So I just started at a relatively young age thinking about all the things that I knew were possible that other people could, maybe they didn't have access to those, like even those ideas. And maybe it was my responsibility or opportunity to make some of those things. And we just... Um... We ship a weekly email called Change Law Weekly, and this isn't a plug for that, but it's awesome. You should sign up for it. Um, we just shipped this latest issue, and I'm going to it right now because um, I was really excited to put this this one post in there in particular, and it was about is coding the new literacy, and that's actually the one. It was uh, it was actually that's actually the title of it, and it was a Mother Jones uh, post, but it was from back in the day, and and I'm glad they didn't have it time stamped well enough so that when people get there you can like judge it based on its date uh because it was such a great article about how you know i think what you're talking about and correct me if i'm wrong but being that code coding is a new literacy when you understand how the phone in your pocket works and you can make something for it it like it changes your life because you could never do that before right and yeah, even absolutely. further back, you couldn't even imagine that something could do, uh, you know, the aha moment where you're mentioning where you're on that customer service call. Like, how how could you not know that's possible? I know it's possible. Why can't you know it's possible? And it's just it's so mind blowing to see the gap there between those who know what's possible and those who don't, and the literacy gap in between. 
And look how close Sarah came to not having that at all. You know, what if her mom didn't start selling computers? What if she had decided not to go ahead and go forward with programming? You know, those things. And even for me, I had a similar circumstance where uh, I was introduced to programming at a very young age. And I think back, that was a catalyst moment for me. What if that had never been shown to me? Would I have been a completely different person? And it's turned out to be, you know, absolutely essential and something that I enjoy so much and enjoy sharing with others. But it was because somebody exposed it to me and let me see what programming was all about and let me see the possibilities of being able to create. And so definitely having that opportunity, I hate that it was. Uh, chance for many people in the past. And I think there's a real uh, initiative to change that. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, I think everybody should learn to code for the same reasons that I think everybody should understand photosynthesis. You know, like, it's not like I use this in my daily life. Like, I don't really use chemistry or um, maybe I, you could argue that I use physics because, you know, gravity makes a difference in my life. But um, there's so many things that I learned in grade school that just helped me make decisions about the world. You know, they helped me understand global warming and they helped me understand why, you know, I think I should pay taxes for certain things that, you know, protect our, you know, that I think there should be laws that protect our environment. And, um, it may help me reason about the world. And I think coding is like one of those things. I don't think everybody needs to be a software developer, but everybody right. yes. should be able to have these tools, right? That's what I tell so many people, too. I meet people who are very, you know, either, one, intellectual, naturally, or educated. And I'm like, you would be a really awesome programmer. And I could just tell based on how you think. And it's not so much that, hey, you should go and program for a living, but... It'd be kind of neat to sit down and learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript as a start potentially, and just like, just understand, like you said before, what's possible. And I, I think that people don't really grasp that, and I wish more people got it. Yeah, I agree. I also think that um, it. I do. Th- I like you. Sometimes I meet people, and you can kind of see how their brain works, and you're like, "Wow, I have an instinct that you'd be good at this and like it." Mm-hmm. But I also think that. It's really hard to tell who's going to be good at programming based on other characteristics. I have this theory that if you took 100 people, that there would always be a certain percentage of them who are good at coding. Like, I don't know whether it's 20% or 50% or 80%, but it's not 100%. Like, and I think it has a lot to do with how, whether people love it. Um, there's like this crazy gratification that some of us get when you're like, wow, it works. Oh my gosh. It's like magic. And not everybody has that amazing thrill when it works. Um, but I think there's some percentage of people, right. For whom they have that it's exciting. It's fun there. It like clicks through your brain in a certain way. And it has nothing to do with whether you're good at math. It has nothing to do with any particular attribute that I've ever been able to see. It's just that some people love it and have that like special spark of this is what they, you know, the, it all makes sense to them. And, you know, and I think that so many people are just not even exposed to it that you would just never know it. And um, that's what's so fun about these work weekend workshops we do, that people learn it, and some people, they just end up like, okay, well, I have this skill that I didn't have before, and that's good. Um, and then other people, it changes their whole world. 
going to take a break here in a, in a minute or so to to cover a sponsor. But before we do that, I want to ask you one question and, and then dive deep into what you're doing at, at uh, Bridge Foundry. And the question is, since you mentioned it, uh, the love moment with programming. At what point can you remember? When did you fall in love with it? And you're like, I'm never leaving this. This is my thing. This is what I'm doing. What was that moment for you? Well, I think it's interesting because I always loved doing it, but I didn't value it. And I think that um, I always felt when I was um, a kid and programming that it was like doing a crossword puzzle or like those. I used to always love those blacksmith puzzles where they're physical puzzles and you try to get the you try to kind of unhook the the loops from each other. Um, but I never occurred to me that I could or should spend my day job doing something that was so fun. And it, it, I, I, I believe that like kind of I was inculcated and maybe it was just how things were in the eighties. Like if you were going to do something meaningfully for, with your life, that that wasn't necessarily something that could be as so joyful. And so I assumed that it was something that I would just have to do in my spare time periodically just for entertainment um, and that I couldn't connect it to um, something that would be actually meaningful in the world, Um, which I think was terribly short-sighted because, of course, computers can, even then, like could affect pretty positive change in the world. But, um, But I wasn't really exposed to that. I wasn't exposed to how powerful computers could be solving real important problems. That was, you know, it, for whatever reason, that wasn't something that I was exposed to until, you know, I was in my 20s. I guess on that note, let's take a quick break. We'll hear from, from uh, one of our awesome sponsors making this show possible. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Bridge Foundry. So we'll be right back. You've heard me talk about Top Towel several times in this podcast, but today is different. I've got a special treat for you. I went out and spoke with a listener who a year ago had never heard of Top Towel. He listened to the show just like you're doing right here, right now, today, and heard us talk about Top Towel and what they're all about, and he decided to get in touch. And now he's living the dream as a freelance software developer with Top Towel. His name is Daniel Alzon, and I sat down and I talked with him. I said, hey, what is it that you love most about Top Towel? Take a listen. Well, for me, the, the thing about TopTal, which I thought would be very hard for me personally as I transitioned to a more consulting role, uh, was the, the way I would have access to new clients and what quality of those would be. So I found that I've had access to awesome clients through TopTal, and it hasn't been that hard to find because they have a lot of choice. And even more than that, uh, there's enough choice, and I, I can actually be a little selective about what kinds of things I want to be working on. So I use that as a way to sort of hone my skills and, you know, go towards the technology that I think are, are worth investing in for the future. So whether it's, you know, including new front-end frameworks or doing a little DevOps work on the side, I, I, I usually am able to find clients who are uh, have the needs of the things I want to get better at. So that's been, that's been uh, truly useful. All right, that was Daniel Lazan, a listener of the Change Log and also a freelance software developer with TopTal. If you want to follow in Daniel's footsteps, go to toptal.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers to learn more about what TopTal is all about 
and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we're back. Bridge Foundry. I'm, I'm excited about this because I've heard so much from Beverly about the work you guys do. Um, there's, uh, We had Sarah May on the show, episode 146. So for those listening, we'll have that link in the show notes, but it's easy to type in, changelog.com slash 146. Uh, we talked about, particularly in that show, we talked about mining the gap. We also talked about uh, a little bit of, of of Bridge Foundry, but also Rails Bridge and this outreach and this education and uh, serving the underrepresented. Um, where should we begin the conversation around Bridge Foundry? Well, maybe begin with the, the the core workshops that you know that's really the thing that took off and has made this organization grow. Um, we had this insight that um, when we started, it was about. Um, really overcoming gender diversity in the Ruby community. And that, you know, very simple insight that maybe if we wanted women to, more women in our community, we should teach them the technology that we're using. And I um, had done a lot of reading on the statistics and knew that um, in, that the, in proprietary software, in corporations, Typically, you see um, about 20 to 25% women programmers. Um, in open source, you see 2 to 3% women programmers or women contributors of any kind. It's kind of even worse than, you know, um, not just having women programmers, but now women in the community. And um, But if you do the math, and I knew sort of roughly how, bit, how many Ruby programmers there were, um, it was likely, and probably still is today, that there are more women programmers in the Bay Area than there are Ruby programmers. So I figured, hey, if we could just convert some of them, it would be easy to get 50-50. Easy, yeah, I say in quotes, um, to have 50-50 women and men in the Ruby community. And if you start with a small community, you can do really powerful things. Um, so we started with this idea, well, let's just teach women. And Sarah was really passionate about um, teaching people who couldn't code. Um, and so I said, okay, you teach that class. <laughs> I'll teach the um, women programmers because I feel like I'm going to get to a, like a quicker outcome of actually having women peers if I start with women Java developers or women C-sharp developers or whatever. Um, and we thought it would be really hard to find women um, to take this workshop that we had dreamed up. And um, we spent like three weeks uh, trying to figure out where we were going to post this and we um, we both tweeted about it, and she posted on this mailing list called um, San Francisco Women of the Web. And in less than 24 hours, we had a wait list. Wow. And back, I mean, you guys might remember, this was, I, I think, 2007, and it was common for people to say, um, oh, maybe women don't want to code. You know, this is this arcane thing, and it just might be that there are fewer women who are interested. And the fact that we had these workshops, and we'd had them, um, we had them every other month, and there was always a wait list. And in San Francisco, we've just consistently had 20 to 60 person wait lists for these events that we've been having for like seven years. Um, it's unbelievable. So... Really, in, in just a few months, people stopped saying that demand was a problem. And it really transformed how people thought about, um, you know, the problems with diversity. Um, but, and it really changed how, you know, kind of I felt as a woman in the field. Like, I stopped 
um, I would just routinely be in these groups with, um, you know, 50 women coding and coming from, like some of them were amazing technologists who just didn't happen to know Rails. And, um, and it was really fun and really transformative for me personally, I think, as well as for the community. Um, and if you hear Sarah May talk, she, she gave this great presentation in December of that year where um, she, we were both keeping stats of the uh, Ruby meetups, and they went from 3% women to 18% women in um, less than six months. So tell me something, Sarah, about how you made the jump to, because this is something that people have asked me, not only how you made the jump from doing just Rails to Bridge Foundry is now offering, um, and you can probably name them. I know we've got the Mobile Bridge. I know we've got uh, most recently an Angular, I believe. Yep. Um, but how did you? How did that go from just one particular technology to others? And then I'm curious about how people, if they say I want to do this, for example, I want to bring a new technology to my area. You know, what would I? What would I do? What are the next steps for that? That's a great question. Um, actually, from the get-go, we, it was sort of controversial that we, we called it RailsBridge because we, mm -hmm. um, one of the other projects that we started at the time, I was um, teaching Ruby to, um, uh, to kids, um, elementary school students, and, um, but we decided to call it RailsBridge because it was really grew out of people in the Rails community that wanted to change things. And we didn't think of it from the get-go as only about Rails. The reason we picked Rails for the workshops is not only that was the most of what Sarah and I were doing, but it was very hot at the time to be doing Rails. And it's not like, like now there's been a lot of kind of learn-to-code marketing. Um, you know, President Obama um, has give, you know, mentioned this a lot, and we've had a lot of um, new organizations really promote the value of learning to code, um, but that was not at all true uh, when we started. So it was really important to latch onto something that had its own momentum. And um, but what we did very intentionally is we made all of the materials open source, and we said, "Hey, anybody can take these materials, do what you want," and. The only um, guideline we set is that if, in order to call it a RailsBridge workshop, it has to be free and it has to be targeted at outreaching to some community that's underrepresented in tech, which turns out to be like the majority of people in the world. Um, so it's not that hard. Um, but what we saw is all of these spinoff groups. So um, there were like three different Python groups. There was PyStar. There was um, the Boston Python Workshops, which is very um, popular, and they did a great job in reaching out to the Python community and actually um, created, I think the individuals who did that had um, transformative effects in, you know, affecting conference speakers and in a lot of different ripple effects that were very exciting to see. Um, and we actually have a funny story because I did a, a workshop in Cambridge um, I think in our first year, but it didn't really catch on in the Boston Ruby community until after the Boston Python workshops. And then they were so inspired by seeing the Boston Python workshops that we um, ended up with a Boston Ruby community that's very, very strong. Um, and so really from the beginning, we had a vision of it being um, any technology. But I think because we had Rails in the name, People who were coming from a different technology that was, you know, substantively different than Rails felt like they needed to create their own separate organization. 
And so we saw that happening, and we really saw that there was this potential for really sharing, um, you know, what I call the meta stuff, you know, the, the how to make a workshop and, and the teaching guidelines and um, the, this sort of viral workshop phenomenon um, is something that is, transcends the technology. So a few years ago, we decided to um, create Bridge Foundry, as, which is really just a renaming of the umbrella organization that we'd always envisioned to house things that were not just Rails, and then renaming Rails Bridge to be just the workshop component of it that was focused on the Rails workshops. And we're still in the midst of that refactor because we still do front-end workshops that are under Rails Bridge and you know, things like that. We're still sorting things out. But, um, but it's pretty easy to um, create a new bridge we have um, Closure Bridge really took off in the last year. That's Closure with a J, um, which is really exciting to have a functional um, language join the family because I feel like if you learn um, a functional language and an object-oriented language and a web application framework, you kind of have the key, a bunch of the key components that you need to um, be a powerful software developer today. And then um, with Mobile Bridge, um, I think that also kind of rounds out the family where people are learning um, native code um, and device code with Java and um, Objective-C. So, um, so to start a new bridge, you just email hello at bridgefoundry.org. We're working on having the guidelines be posted um, but the best way to get a sense of um, how it works is to go to uh, one of these bridge workshops, wherever you are. And if you want to check one out, you can go to bridgetroll.org. And um, most of the um, different technologies post their workshops there. And, um, and the process is pretty easy. Basically, we'll have a conversation about, like, do you really understand, like, the, what we're trying to do here? Because it's, most of it's written down, but it's written down in a lot of different places. And we're working on ways to make that kind of the, the documentation be more comprehensive. So a lot of it is transmitted through kind of the oral tradition about talking about the mission and do you understand it? And um, are you going to move things forward in this direction? And if, we, if we're aligned in philosophy, then um, you then fork um, one of the different um, organizations on GitHub. And um, Angular Bridge did this most recently by just forking the mobile bridge materials. And um, we have a very collaborative process. We like the, um, the GitHub issues um, mechanism. Yeah. for um, sharing openly. And so even though I think it's, I don't love calling workshops issues. Yes. I wish they were <laughs> stories. I, I, you know, I wish we were using, um, I wish GitHub would change their nomenclature. Um, not only for um, workshops. I've heard that before, but, for sure. But also for open source projects. Everything isn't yeah. an issue. Um, but anyhow, we use that, and it's very easy to tag people, and it's completely transparent, so anybody can come join the organizing team for a workshop. And um, I, I, I think that's a, real, that's a breakthrough that um, Rachel Myers innovated, and then all of the different um, bridges are starting to um, uh, use those techniques, which I think is really exciting. And that's been super helpful for me as well, because I actually was tagged on something for a Rails bridge that was regionally close to me, but not necessarily in my state or even in my town. But it was something that I could provide assistance on. And 
because everything is transparent. It's not stuck in someone's email box. So this collaboration is, you know, it's truly a community helping to organize these workshops. And um, something else that I think is really nice is all the curriculum is open source. So people can contribute to it and they can, uh, I've seen lots of Rails Bridge forks in the past for the curriculum there. And so um, I think that's been really helpful to see that. And something else I was going to ask you to share, Sarah, is that this is really a culmination of the stone soup illustration that you've shared on your blog before, because we're all bringing what we have as a talent and essentially to really better the community and, and to teach them. Um, do you mind sharing how that's really manifested with the stone soup illustration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like often um, putting a workshop together is like that. It's very intimidating. I mean, to put on an event, especially because most of our volunteers are developers. They're individual contributors who um, know how to write code and they're inspired to share what they know. But most of them have not put on an event or approached a company about donating space or, you know, God forbid, asked for somebody for money for sponsoring something. And so each of these things seems a big, big hurdle. And often all we need is somebody to say, okay, I will organize it. And then, um, and then it's much easier for somebody to help than it is for somebody to do. And I think this was, most, it was best illustrated by um, somebody, I got a tweet one day from, um, uh, I can't remember who was first, whether it was Leanna Leahy or um, Mary Tolbert from Boston, who said, hey, how do we have a Railsbridge workshop in Boston? This was the very first one that actually took place in Cambridge. Um, and I said, well, my family's there. If you organize a workshop, then I'll come teach. And based on that, you know, I was like, I'll bring a rock. Let's make soup. There, you know, we found TAs, um, space, all of the things came together. And every single person who was involved, some, some people did an awful lot of work, but it's that impetus. Somebody has to say, okay, I will step up. I will bring the first space or I will be the first teacher. I will, um, you know, in the case of a new bridge, like I will pot, write some pot like lunch or something like that. You know, it's like everybody brings something and everybody eats. Exactly. Many hands make light work. Yes. Yes, for sure. Well, that's neat. Um, I guess another question I, I have for you is, is uh, your passion for the underrepresented. Um, not only uh, gender-based or race-based, but even down to children. You love kids. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it Who comes doesn't love from, kids, right? Who doesn't love kids? Well, some <laughs> people don't. Um, I have a child. I have a boy child, which is also comes from one... Like, I didn't want to do things just for girls because I would never want to do something that he couldn't be a part of. Um, and I also see how there's... Tr- I... I by no means ever want to diminish anyone's enthusiasm for doing this great work. But if you have a boy child, there's actually fewer things these days um, to bring them to, to get them enthusiastic about technology. Cause there's a lot of girls only um, programs now, but there um, are, you know, there are fewer programs um, that are inclusive of boys, which is kind of an odd thing. Um, because, I mean, only 10 years ago, the, all the things were um, were not, even if they weren't targeted at boys, it, they, they feel that way if it's going to be mostly boys. 
Um, so I think we just need to be balanced in our approach and make it so that these, these opportunities are available for, for everyone. Um, and I'm also very painfully aware that a lot of the work we do is really available to people who are quite well off. Um, it, you know, again, not to diminish the fact that there is very real sexism in the world and there are a lot of women who, you know, maybe, um, they have a lot of resources, but they still can't find a job because of barriers in the workplace. Um, but then there are people who, um, have the aptitude for this work and they don't have a laptop, can't come to a workshop. And um, when we were doing the very first year of RailsBridge, I was really struck by, like, is this the work that I want to be doing with my life? Like, teaching coding to, um, you know, people with, of privilege. Um, and a very good friend of mine, David Bogarts, um, who I know from high school, said to me, well, maybe what you're doing is you're first doing this work in the community that you know the people that you are most like and most have access to and um and then if you're successful and you know in you make this transformative you will then have a whole lot of volunteers who can then take this further and it's very very exciting to start seeing that now um there's a volunteer here in San Francisco Michelle Glauser who's um looking at you know, are there places in San Francisco, and we've identified a few of them, that are teaching, um, like, Word and Excel and PowerPoint to people who don't have computers. And maybe there's an opportunity for partnership there. Maybe we could, um, you know, teach coding classes in their labs. Um, because I think that um, we have to go beyond just teaching people to write words on computers. Um, I think this just such an opportunity to broaden our group of makers to all the people in the world. And if we don't do that, we will not solve the problems that we need to solve to fix the, um, the planet we're on uh, or all the damage we're doing to the planet we're on, I should say. I'm reminded that every day, you know, I don't know about you, but I watch Vice News on HBO every once in a while. And they had this episode recently about uh, this myth called global warming. Oh. Uh, and I'm not sure which side of the fence you stand on, but it seems so scientifically clear and so visibly clear that we have some serious issues. And they may or not be able to be solved by us by reducing carbon emissions and things like that. But there is a problem and there is something to be to be solved there. And, and yet – People can still turn a blind eye to this changing earth we're on and still do crazy stuff. Uh, you know, adjacent to that was a topic in India and how they have really poor sewage system and they ha how they have public defecation. Like it's crazy how there's such severe conditions in the world and we're just, you know, I, I guess bubbled. I, people say privileged and I'm I'm almost. I'm weary of that because I know I'm privileged, but at the same time, there's some things in my past because I'm white, I'm a male, um, but I grew up poor. I should not be here where I'm at today. And if I told you my story, you'd cry, but I got a crazy story and it wasn't privileged my whole life, even though I'm white and I'm a male. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're in these bubbles. you know. And it's like you said, touch the people you can 
that you have most access to. Once you've proven the concept or proven your your ability, move on to or have a ton of volunteers to, to go to the next step. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because, and thank you for um, kind of sharing a little bit of your personal story because, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm always um, so moved by the people who attend these workshops. Um, one of the things that we always do is um, provide coffee in the morning and, and snacks and lunch and we have an after party where the volunteers get drink tickets and everybody goes out and socializes and that's really I've always thought that was important because it keeps people there in this social environment um, but after one workshop we got this feedback of somebody who said that they um, would not have been able to afford to eat except that the food was provided. And so it was very, it was incredible to them because it was such an equalizer. Whereas normally, you know, if they go, they either have to not eat or, you know, everybody else goes out to eat and they can't join. And um, I, I remember writing this blog post, post called The Psychology of Abundance. And I think that's so important for creating a great learning environment is not feeling, you know, this desperate feeling of like of scarcity, right? I think that that inhibits our creativity. And for to just for one day to give everybody that ex- feeling of there's food here for me, there are people here for me, I've got all the things, and the only thing that I have to overcome is that very challenging gap from what I don't know to what I do know. And um, I can, I get, I get the same everything as everybody else for this one day, and I think that that's just such a precious thing. I'd like, I wish everybody in the world had that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something um, that is really tremendous about the workshops is that it really is an equalizer. And one of the things that's really great about the whole stone soup concept and everybody in your area giving what you can or doing what you can for your local region, you know, for example, Sarah can't do anything in Florida. Um, she can, but she's not in proximity to Florida. I'm, I'm here. This is a circle that I can impact. I'm not in San Francisco. I can't impact her circle, but she can. And one of the things that I, I do like is that because we're connected by the internet, because we have these workshops, because we have GitHub, she's also um, helped me to be more sensitive to uh, really the people that we look up to and the heroes that we have. And Sarah, you wrote a post about uh, being an ally. I don't know if you recall that, um, that started out about talking about being privileged and uh, things like that. I would love it if you'd share more about your uh, experience and, and just focusing on even diversifying your heroes and looking to different people, even in different sectors. Uh, because I think that's uh, tremendous. It really helps us to grow. I like that post, by the way. That was a really good Yeah, post. it's a great post, isn't it? Yes. Thanks. That actually came out of um, every, uh, Martin Luther King Day. And um, every year at, for Mightyverse, for the last, I don't know, three or four years, we do, um, we've been taking the I Have a Dream speech and translating it into another language and doing recordings of different voices. And, um, you know, as we all know the past year has been a yes. rough year for race in America. Um, it has just come, I mean, I have just such empathy for, um, you know, people who have a different experience of me and who don't feel safe in their own cities. Um, you know, and as a woman, I've, you know, there's certainly a lot of places that I don't feel safe, but um, it's just, it can't be compared to being a black person in America. 
and um, there was a number of articles the two weeks before um, Martin Luther King Day about the um, Santa Clausification of Dr. Martin Luther King, and that he's like somehow, um, you know, safe uh, black hero, and it's and and that there's only certain speeches and parts of speeches that are retold. And that, you know, the I Have a Dream speech that has been, uh, at, at least in some people's um, thinking, appropriated by um, white America. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm doing this um, whole thing around I Have a Dream. And I felt it was really important to write about this other perspective. And, um, and I think that I have this voice which can be heard by white people easier than... Um, than, you know, other voices. I and think we're, we all get a chance to be change agents, and I think that's sort of the role you play, because something you just said there was that you have, um, paraphrasing because it's kind of broke my mind, but that you have access to white people's minds, I guess. How did you say it? Well, I think that I can be heard. Or you can be heard. Okay, that's, yeah. Sorry it's for, like, for, I don't remember exactly how I said it, but that um, I think that I am of a culture and uh, like even though that in some ways I'm a marginalized um, I'm in a marginalized community in my wider community I'm a woman I have um, you know certain attributes I'm now a little older I I'm a mom like these are things that um, you know not everybody who is a software engineer think highly of. But at the same time, as I'm marginalized in some circles, in other circles, I'm given undue weight and undue respect. Not undue, but uneven. You know, I I got a computer science degree. I went to an Ivy League school. I started programming when I was 12. You know, like these are all these attributes that some I think are overvalued, right? It's not that I don't think they should be valued. It's just that I think people who taught themselves to code when they're 25 should be as respected as somebody who went through four years of a CS degree. And so we need we need to just take advantage of the you know the 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 platforms that we have to, um, as you say, make change. Well. Sarah, the one thing I'm noticing, though, is that you allow the things that marginalize you to describe you, not define you, right? Like, you're not boxed in by them. They're part of who you are. They don't make up who you are. They're not your identity. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, it, it took me a long time to get to that space. Um, and I think that it's, it, it, for a long time, I um, I worried about um, that I was being like too female, a little, little quiet voice, little shy voice for a long time, and that I really tried to change who I was and or how I behaved, um, so that I would not be um, have my ideas um, uh, boxed in by how people perceived me. And then I think at, certainly growing up and being a parent and um, being a mom. I've grown to really cherish, you know, these different parts of my, me. And um, luckily, 
uh, was able to seek out people who celebrate the, you know, how we're all different from each other and that that, and largely through the work of RailsBridge and Bridge Foundry, had a chance to meet and interact with this completely different community that is hundreds of thousands of people inside the software community that actually values the things that I value. And I used to think that it was 0.001% or something. Like It was so rare for me to interact with people who shared my values that I thought that it was, it was too much for me to expect that I could work with these people, that, um, that I felt like I had to you know, hide my values under a bushel. But, you know, um, it's not that way. And I think that's very exciting. That's a good uh, time to take a pause real quick and hear from a sponsor, our uh, last sponsor of the show here. We'll break for a minute, come back. Beverly's got a pressing question for you that uh, I'm excited to hear about. So when we get back, Beverly will take over. So just a sec. I have yet to meet a single person who doesn't love DigitalOcean. If you've tried DigitalOcean, you know how awesome it is. And here at the changelog, everything we have runs on blazing fast SSD cloud servers from DigitalOcean. And I want you to use the code changelog when you sign up today to get a free month, run a server with one gig of RAM and 30 gigs of SSD drive space, totally for free on DigitalOcean. Use the code changelog. Again, that code is changelog. Use that when you sign up for a new account. Head to digitalocean.com to sign up and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we're back. Beverly, what uh, what do you have on your side over there? The primary question is, so I've really benefited from hearing a lot of your experience. So if you are talking to somebody who is in an area who maybe they're not in San Francisco, maybe they're in a, a smaller area or North Carolina or something like that. And they hear this and they're inspired to impact their area or to make sure that software is more available. Um, and they don't want it to be by chance. What are the things that you would suggest that they do, you know, where they are, like what is an action step that they could take today to start making themselves uh, available to other people or to serve their community or to make information accessible where they are? Well, I think that, um, the, Wherever anybody is, there's opportunity to volunteer and reach out and teach what you know. So if you don't, if you're excited about this and there's things you don't know and you want to learn, um, there's a lot of great online resources. But I'm a huge fan of connecting in person with your local community. I think that those ties um, can be very, very powerful. So... Um, there's a lot of different groups doing this kind of work, but I would also encourage you to, you know, don't be afraid to start things. Um, there, I think just look out at your local meetups, go out there and, um, and check out all the different things happening in your community and, um, and the things happening online and look for the opportunities to meet like-minded people and get yourself a support system too. You know, yeah. I think that that's really important that, um, that there's a balance. And one of the things that I've found for myself and I've seen in other people is that by doing this work, it gives back. And if you're feeling drained by it, then I think you need to strike a balance where you're also getting support and you're right. finding a way where you can strike that balance where you're getting 
um, enriched by the work that you do as well as doing it. And I think, too, we sometimes have this vision of, oh, I've got to have a workshop with 50 people or I've got to have a workshop with 30 people or something like that. And that's really not true. Because one of the things that um, I remember reading about your um, teaching kids, Railsbridge, that was one of the first things when I started teaching kids that I looked to as a resource because now I teach a monthly tech club uh, for homeschoolers and uh, we've used some of that material and some of the ideas that you expressed a long time ago in that uh, in those posts and things. And something that people need to realize is they could have a you know coffee table meetup. In fact, the first Railsbridge workshop it actually probably wasn't an officially sanctioned workshop, but um, literally there were three of us around a kitchen table, and I said, "Let's go through the curriculum together." Because you know they wanted to get started, they couldn't go for it, and and there was no minimum. I mean, it wasn't an official workshop, but you don't have to have this formal thing. The lovely thing about open source is that the curriculum is available, and you can impact your community. And you've been such a good example of that of just starting, just doing something, and you know, uh, just being free to go ahead and and try something different and impact your community that way. Yeah, I would also underscore that there there need be no official sanction. Correct. If it's free, if you're doing it in your community um, and you're teaching others, it's a, you know, you can um, use all the materials and do the work and um, it's a wonderful thing. And Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I started teaching kids just, you know, my kids elementary school and um, doing things small scale first. The other thing that's great about teaching kids, and I would highly recommend, is I taught, I practice the lessons with my kid and two of his friends, and then I let them be um, TAs. And kids, getting kids to teach kids, I think, is the most amazing thing because they will learn so much through teaching, and giving them that responsibility is, um, I think, the best thing that you can give to them. And they have no fear. That was something that you yeah. shared with me after we had our Railsbridge teen. And my kind of post notes debrief as I was going through it was like they were willing to experiment and try in ways that the adults were not. And we had an entirely every it was under 18. It was uh, roughly seventh to 12th graders who did the Railsbridge wor- workshop. And it was amazing. It was amazing to see. And then they would help each other and then they would tee each other a little bit. It was really, really uh, amazing to see that. Kids. Kids are so awesome. <laughs> Uh, so Sarah, I've been, uh, it was sort of last minute too, as I'm prepping the notes to, to prepare for this call, I was thinking, you know, what would be a profound question to ask you in addition to some of our awesome closing questions we'll ask you as well, but what's a good profound question that I could ask you that would get something futuristic to get you to hypothesize about the future or what isn't there that should be there. And the question is what's missing in software that you wish was there that either you're actively trying to add or hope to one day be able to add software community, uh, not just tech wise, but just in this space we're in open source things you're involved in. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I think there's, um, like a few different angles on it. I think, um, the biggest thing that's, um, missing in the world today, um, is great places to work. Um, I have been really um, fortunate in working with really amazing teams um, and largely because I sought them out. I think that there's a lot of people who, um, I talk to women all the time who um, are leaving the workforce. Um, Not the workforce, just leaving computing. 
um, they've decided they, they or they're coming back through the workshops, right? Um, so I think that the biggest thing that we need is workplaces where people respect each other, regardless of what they look like or their backgrounds um, or how they came to be computer programmers. And, um, and I think we need this everywhere, right? This is not just a problem amongst um, software developers, but I think we have a unique opportunity in tech to fix it because people, the entry points are so low in terms of um, not having to have a formalized background to get into it. It still takes a lot of hard work to get into it, but, um, but I think we have a tremendous opportunity to transform the workplace into a place where people actually respect each other regardless of their background. So that's the biggest thing that is not missing, but not as ubiquitous as I think it should be. And then the other thing, which I think ties into the entry point, um, is that I think that every computer and every device should come with software that lets you hack it. I think that... um, it should not be. Uh, it shouldn't require you to install extra stuff to um, write simple code that controls your computer or your device. So does, does that mean that you're pro Android and anti Apple? I well, I'm a big <laughs> fan of um, Apple's uh, software and hardware, uh, but it is. Um, I think. Steve Wozniak um, had a great influence on the early Mac and early Apple. And and I think that something's been lost there. So iOS must upset you then to a degree because, like, it does take a computer and extra software to do anything with it. Like, you can't do much from the actual device. Well, it's bigger than that. It was actually against their terms of service to develop any app that allowed the end user to code until like a year or two ago. So Apple creates policies that makes it harder for third-party developers to make this accessible. And, you know, that's changing, but, um, but it needs to change more. So for those who are longtime listeners of the show, know that we have a few questions we'd like to ask at the end of the show. We're going to ask two today. Uh, we're not going to do several of them. Uh, but one I want to ask you in particular that sort of contrasts against something you might say in response uh, to your on being an ally post when you said name your heroes and you said seriously make a list of your top ten. If they were mostly one race, class, or gender, find some more heroes. And we have a question we like to ask people, which is who's your programming hero? I, I guess we can open that up to be any hero, but I'd like to see if you can name ten. Um, well, I'll name six. Okay. Actually, I don't know all of their names. Um, but the, uh, my programming heroes are the women who programmed the ENIAC. So um, in 1945, um, there were two um, engineers who created um, one of the first, maybe the first digital computer, which was the ENIAC. And they, um, it was built to um, solve these um, parabolic equations to uh, I think they were they would to do the trajectory of a um, of the ballistics uh, you know for the for World War II and before 
the computer, they had um, women who they would hire um, who were math majors, they, they um, recruited to use slide rules to create these books of, um, you know, sort of, you would, you would have like the angle that the gun was pointed and what kind of munition it was and like the wind speed and these different um, inputs. And then it would say um, like how they would, would set up um, these, uh, you know, the, the guns in order to point the artillery at the enemy. And um, the, in actually in the early um, 1900s, they, um, they would call these women who would do math computers. There's a great book called If Computers Were Human. Or When Computers Were Human, sorry. Anyhow, um, they took six of the best computers and they told them that they had a new assignment for them and they gave them the wiring diagrams, the schematics of the computer and of the new machine. And they said that they needed to figure out how to wire up the inputs and outputs in order to make it do the same calculations that they had been doing with slide rules. And these six women were the very first programmers. Um, and I was just um, looking up um, Kay McNulty and um, Jean Jennings um, invented the subroutine, um, which was like, oh, we won't have to plug in these wires to can make these connections as many times we could reuse this um, little bit of logic. And, um, you know, and they invented loops and all of these, you know, sort of very common programming structures today that um, they were doing programming by like connecting, you know, wires to sockets. And I think those are my heroes. They were doing things that were actually hard. And then um, after, you know, when the, all this stuff became public, um, they were not even mentioned in any of the articles. Uh, that's not cool. That's not cool. That's but not cool. <laughs> what's very exciting is um, 50 years later, um, Kathy Kleiman did a whole lot of research and surfaced these stories. And um, in the last 10 years, there's been a number of articles about this amazing work that these women did. And, um, and I just love to hear about the early days of, um, you know, women and men when they were, you know, inventing things and creating things that now we take for granted. So we have one other question that we wanted to ask to Sarah, and that is, um, and I know a little bit of this because I'm already involved um, somewhat with Bridge Foundry, but uh, even if you're not somebody who's going to TA, you, you don't necessarily have a technology that you want to put forward and you want to go ahead and share, what would you say is a good uh, call to arms for Bridge Foundry or if somebody wants to step in and help and maybe they're a designer or maybe they're just a community innovator. Like I have a friend who's really great at just planning parties and so she's really good at helping with workshops because she's good at the logistics. Um, what would you say to someone like that or some uh, things that they should see about contributing to or ways that they might be able to help their community even if they're not a programmer and they aren't starting a new workshop or creating curriculum? Well, I think that there's, we need all the things, right? that um, people who can organize logistics and organize events are precious and amazing people. And um, there's, it turns out that they, we've had an easier time finding teachers and TAs than the other skills. And maybe it's because, you know, we're finding people who are like us and that's always easier. But, um, you know, and, or maybe we're just not you know, getting the word out effectively. But, um, but the people who know, who are willing to step up and you know do the logistics side of things and put up events and um, and the other thing is I think people who are willing to write the stories 
who are willing to show up at an event and take photos and write a blog post. I believe that if more people even just knew what was happening with all of these workshops and the programmers teaching programmers and you know people becoming um, new programmers every weekend, that that would transform the world as much as our doing the work itself. Definitely. Because a lot of it is just like we started talking about at the beginning, you know, knowing it's possible, knowing yep. it's an option is half the battle. And making it accessible to everybody. That's, that's really, that's really the angle. Yeah. And making it, you know, I mean, like I look at these, I think about like these, you know, sort of young musicians who you, you hear these amazing um, young people, you know, from all walks of life, right, who are, are coming out of, you know, poverty or um, different backgrounds where maybe they wouldn't think of um, being a, a programmer. And they're so creative. I think those are the people who should be, like, making mobile apps. And um, I'd like, to, you know, I'd like us to be reaching everybody. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly true for sure. Well, it's, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show finally, Sarah. Very excited about what you're working on. Um, very awesome for you to give us your time today to, to sort of dive deep, not only into some of your passions, but also to share some of your backstory about who you are and what makes Ultrasaurus Ultrasaurus. <laughs> so I, I've, uh, I've been uh, very curious about you know who you are and what, where you've come from. So I appreciate uh, being privileged enough to, to sit here and have this conversation with you. And Beverly, thank you so much for making this possible to just kind of uh, aligning the stars with us and Sarah and just sharing what you do share and the ways that you work uh, with bridge, bridge foundry in your area. Um, is there anything else you want to cover before we tail off? Cause if not, I'm going to, I'm going to go through our, our rundown of, of going out and that'll be it. Oh, well, I think just one more plug. Um, we would love to have more open source contributors to Bridge Troll, which is our open source registration system. We would love designers and developers, people who want to write up stories of how it's used um, or screencasts for new organizers. So whatever um, part of um, the software development process that you might be excited to contribute with, um, go to... Um, to GitHub um, in the Rails Bridge organization, there's um, a bridge troll repo and um, lots of instructions about how to get started and join our Google group and we'd love to have you. Awesome. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit on, on Sarah's show. She mentioned the same thing, so you guys are in sync on uh, on promoting uh, contributions to that. So we'll link it up in the show notes for sure because um, that's what we do around here, right? Excellent. Um, so just for those who are listening, uh, what did I say this episode number was? 157. So this is episode 157. Go to changelog.com slash 157. Everything we talked about, heroes and all, will be in there. We'll do all the digging for you. Don't worry about wrecking your car because you're trying to type down the URL. It's not going to happen. Don't do that. Just go to our show notes and you'll be taken care of. Uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening to the show. Thanks to our sponsors, CodeShip. TopTal and DigitalOcean for being awesome and supporting the show. Next week, we have uh, an awesome show as well. Every every week is an awesome show. Single Page Apps with uh, Henrik. And I, I haven't practiced pronouncing his last name, but I think it's Jorteg or it's Horteg. I haven't asked, but uh, if anybody here knows, correct me, please. Uh, but other than that, I think that's the end of the show. So let's say goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you.